Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. So welcome everybody to our uh, fifth podcast. Thank you for those of you who've joined us again. Remember, this is a free service that is available for download on Spotify and on Anchor. I'm Stan Landau and joining me today, Michael Brown. Hello, everyone. And I'm pleased to say we have our first studio guest to join us for this week's session. We say hello to Kirsten de Klerk down in Cape Town. Good morning, everyone. A busy week for everybody, no doubt. Michael, you and I spent much time. We had a training session this week, but you've also had a, a busy week. And I'm always keen to hear. We work remotely from each other. So chatting to you on this podcast really gives me a lot of insight into how your week turned out. Yes, Stan, very busy week. One thing that really irritated me this week was my experience of delivering a education session at a conference. I won't name the conference, but I essentially was asked to come and talk about diabetes and how a particular group of health professionals could be useful in changing diabetes care for the better. And it was crazy. They did the conference sessions on the periphery of the exhibition venue. So you were trying to talk above the general hum of a large exhibition and people walking past, chatting and laughing, and you trying to share your insights into better diabetes care. And so, of course, I've nearly lost my voice as a result. We need to pay education a little bit more respect than that. The resilience you've shown over the years in terms of education is remarkable and pleasing to hear that the sales content, I would imagine this was a very large sales-driven uh, conference, yes. included an educational component. But you're right, to marginalize it, certainly not the most appropriate way to deliver education material. No. Michael, you were speaking last week when we got together about the advocacy course you had undertaken, and you and I spent much time thereafter talking about it, mm -hmm. something that I was really naive to. And that was the key catalyst why we've invited Kirsten to join us today. And we're going to get into her background in terms of advocacy, but I'm going to kick off by saying that I landed up having a look at the SA Diabetes Advocacy site, and I've got some great questions to share with our guests today. But Kirsten, welcome. Tell our audience a little about yourself, and I'm going to ask you a tongue-in-cheek question. You know, how, how did you get into diabetes? Perfect. Well, I got into diabetes, first of all, by getting diagnosed with diabetes at the age of 16. It's now been a 12-year journey, going on to 13 years. And in the beginning, I felt no need for advocacy. Um, I was 16 years old, and you know there was very little in terms of community, and I was kind of just going at it alone. And it was only later in my college years that I realized that I was really lacking something, because I could not bring myself to look after myself. I knew all the things that I needed to do, but everything just started kind of going downhill. And I didn't know what I, what the missing link was. What did I need to motivate myself to look after myself? Um, there's a big gap between your parents looking after you and you looking after you. <laughs> and I think I eventually realized that community was the one thing I needed. And I started um, volunteering with Sweet Life, with Bridget Magnelty there. And it kind of just opened up the doors to this 
community of people living with diabetes in South Africa and I haven't looked back. I've changed careers. I'll now work in diabetes full time. And my advocacy journey particularly started when I had access to CGM for the first time. And I realized how empowering a CGM device can be for someone living with diabetes to have access to all that extra information of how your body is affected by everything around you. Um, And I think that's where my advocacy journey started, knowing that so many people in South Africa were never going to afford this opportunity. And I think there was a lot of guilt around me being able to afford this opportunity. And why do I get to live a better life with diabetes when everyone else did not have the same opportunity as me? Great start there. You've mentioned so many channels that we could explore, all of which are going to be great and meritorious in terms of getting to the nitty gritty of this. I just want to pick up one of those themes. You said that you kind of hit rock bottom before you began your advocacy journey. Just share with us a little bit of that time then. The reason I ask it is I see a lot of young people with type 1 diabetes who come out of their adolescent years into their early 20s, wilderness years, if you will, not really sure where they're heading from a study point of view, have left the formal education component and are now belabored with this chronic medical condition, type 1 diabetes in your case. Rock bottom implying what? I think if you look at the school structure, you're in a lot of routine. You have your exercise component at the school level. You've got routine in your day because you go to school, you've got your lessons, you get home at the same time, you go to bed at the same time. You're still living in your home structure, going to bed at the same time. My parents were a very big part of carb counting, helping me with my carb counting and ensuring that I had access to foods that were going to make me feel good and work well with my blood glucose levels. And that transition from a school routine to a college routine is what completely threw me off. First of all, you're meeting new people, you are out and about, you're socializing a lot more. So you're not at home every night to eat the dinner that (laughs) that I was used to with my parents. You're not exercising as much. So I started to see a real change in my blood glucose readings. And the more I started to finger prick, the more disappointed in myself I got. But instead of going and asking for help or alerting my doctor or my parents that things weren't going well, I just kept quiet. And it just got worse and worse until I got to the point where I chose to just ignore the blood glucose levels. If I didn't see them, (laughs) I just, I felt a lot better. And I know now that that is called diabetes distress or burnout. I did not know it at the time. I thought that I was just labeled as everyone would call me a bad diabetic. It went on for a period of nearly two years that I did not finger prick. I would just go on what I was feeling. If I was feeling a sugar high, I knew what I felt like. And if I was feeling a sugar low, so I was basically just chasing highs and lows. I was extremely exhausted. I was sick all the time. My immune was compromised. It was really, really a terrible time. And the weird thing is I knew exactly what I needed to do to get back on track. And every Monday I would wake up and be like, okay, this week I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and I'm going to get everything under control. And by Wednesday, It was just so overwhelming that I would go back to my old habits. And I think also it's just that no one around me could understand what I was going through. So I had no support in someone to hold me accountable. I had no one to lean on. I had no one to vent to who could truly understand what it felt like to wake up after a night of sugar highs. I would say rock bottom really hits after that two-year period when I first felt a sort of numbness or tingling in my toes. And I realized that if I carried on like this, all those terrible things we hear about in terms of long-term complications with diabetes was that I was going to end up maybe getting my leg amputated or going blind or having kidney failure. And it's not something that I wanted for my life. 
powerful stuff. You speak at really intimate level in terms of something tangible having manifested really as being a key catalyst in terms of enhancing the self-care that you began to display thereafter. I'm absolutely amazed at that word you used there because we're going to talk about advocacy in that sense. You kind of implied bad diabetic, you know, a term we often hear in the day-to-day clinical practice. My own colleagues guilty of this anywhere within the healthcare spectrum. Michael, Kirsten, advocacy of language. Michael, we've spoken about that virtually every session we've had here, just in terms of appropriateness of language and the utilization in the clinical setting. Good diabetic, bad diabetic, it kind of has a really nastiness about it. It does. Talking about language and diabetes can never be overemphasized. Words like good or bad that imply some measure of judgment we should try and avoid as much as possible. And so instead of doing that, rather focus on aspects that they are doing right. If a person with diabetes comes up with an excellent set of blood glucose readings, for example, it's an opportunity for us to say, well, what went well here? What resulted in this pattern? So instead of focusing on the highs and the lows and the variability, which are absolutely important in the long term, let's first work on gaining confidence and not judging what we see and focus on the right so that the person is feeling less overwhelmed. And my heart hurt when you said that, Kirsten, because I empathized with your feelings, how powerful they were. And I'm so glad that you've shared, as Stan said, so honestly and intimately, so that health professionals listening in and the families of people with diabetes can hear what actually goes on in the mind of a person with diabetes and start thinking and reflecting on how we can better support people. Michael, all too often, that notion of judgment leads to the perpetuation, at least in the healthcare setting, that that language gets carried on and on. And I'm pleased to say that as part of our insert for this week, and before we get into the advocacy component, because that's going to be the bulk of our discussion with Kirsten in a moment, is our message from Sweet Life this week in terms of you know understanding what people with diabetes ultimately want to hear from their diabetes team. And I think if we just pause for a moment and listen to this week's message, it ties up very nicely with the conversation we've kicked off. Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. Fear isn't a motivator. I had such an interesting exchange earlier this week on a type one group with a woman who had worked so hard to bring her HbA1c down and she was doing so well and she went into her doctor and her doctor spent the whole session telling her how she was still gonna develop long-term complications. Luckily, the rest of the group had many people living with type one for over 30 years and they could say, no, he's wrong, it's not true. You can live a healthy, happy life with diabetes. But for some reason, this doctor still thought that fear was going to drive continued good behavior. And I think we all know that that's not the case anymore. And I think it's really important if someone is working hard on their diabetes to recognize that and celebrate that, even if it's not where you want it to be. Celebrate the fact that they are doing so well right now. Powerful words, Kirsten. We're going to hear in terms of the advocacy you spearheaded in terms of access of continuous blood glucose monitoring. Healthcare providers seem to be part of the problem, for lack of a better description. How can we advocate or what can an advocacy organization such as yours do to get the healthcare providers on board so that they pay more of a positive, less judgmental role in the advocacy setting? 
That's something I speak to quite often, and it's that missing link between lived experience and the doctor's approach. And it's something that I've never come across in my own diabetes care is to be connected with someone who has the lived experience. Because if you think about it, you meet with your doctor once a quarter, maybe for an hour, and then you go out and you live your life. And I cannot contact my doctor at any given hour and say, listen, I want to try and maybe have a pizza tonight. Could you hold me, you know, do my insulin adjustments for that? And social media can be such an empowering platform. I now have this community of people living with diabetes all over the world. And I can post on my story, guys, I want to try pizza tonight. What formulations do you normally use on your insulin dosages? And people will say, you know, this works for me, this works for me. And I think the important thing, which my endocrinologist always tells me, is you need to find the Kirsten plan. What works for someone else is not going to work for you. You can't go read a textbook about some person who's gone on keto diet and has changed their type 1 diabetes regimen. You can't expect what works for someone else to work for you. And I think if we somehow made a connection between the lived experience and the textbook approach, we can find a way to, to merge the two. And again, when it comes to what Bridget was just saying, and something I love that Bridget always talks about is that not once when you're diagnosed, you get told that you can actually live a really long, healthy life with diabetes. It's always the fear of complications. You get told about amputation and kidney failure and blindness and all the terrible things that can happen to you. And that fear motivation, again, when I was in my burnout phase, I was told that if I don't look after myself, I'm not going to be able to have children. Pump therapy was always used as a sort of threat. Like, you know, if you don't look after yourself, we're going to put you on the pump because it was something I never wanted to do. And I think if, if healthcare providers could link with people with lived experience to understand how motivation works. And also I read a, I read something on LinkedIn actually this morning, I can't remember who it was by, but he was talking about how healthcare professionals can start the session. How often we go in and they plug your monitor in, they look at your results and they go, what were you doing here? You know, they just go straight to the numbers instead of asking, where is your life at at the moment? What are you struggling with when it comes to your diabetes management at the moment? Where do you need help? We never get asked that. We just go straight to the numbers. We go straight to the incident dosage amounts. We go straight to, are you eating healthy? Are you exercising? All of these things. But there's nothing about where you are in a mental health perspective. And I think that could completely change the game. Mark Heyman's doing a lot of work I see on LinkedIn in terms of psychological components of diabetes care. And he says he speaks exactly to that. You come in, the machine's plugged in, you are your number. 30 minutes every six months and away you go. We always teach in the academy that the first question you ask of a person with diabetes is, how are you? Not the traditional South African greeting, how's it, which is rhetorical and not expecting a reply, but a genuine person, how are you today? And linking very much with the Zulu word, sawabona, which actually means, I see you. And I love that word and, and I love the meaning behind it traditionally, because it means I see you in all your humanity, I see your physical being, I see your aura, I see your emotions, I see where you are standing, I see how you are standing. And I think if we can get that kind of interaction going to support exactly what you're saying, we can start our journey to changing diabetes care for the better. 
think it raises an interesting point that the deficiencies perhaps in healthcare training or healthcare practitioner training has really meant that the advocacy has started at the person with diabetes level. And that's incredible. We're not waiting for the doctors, in other words, to get going because that may take a lifetime. There may be any kind of hindrance in that sense. And I love what you've said, Michael, in terms of the gestalt, the seeing the full picture in that sense. But Kirsten, let's jump into the advocacy component now because I became aware of this entity really on the LinkedIn platform when one started to see the larger medical aids decline CGM availability. And then all of a sudden there was this push for advocacy. Well, we're beginning to have these conversations now. You shared with us that that was in fact a turning point in your own diabetes journey. Tell us about the advocacy push for continuous glucose monitoring, such as Libre, such as Dexcom. So I went to a, a seminar where I was given the opportunity to use Freestyle Libre system for two weeks. And it was at a time when I was coming out of diabetes, stress or burnout. And, and I was just completely like for the first time, I was seeing exactly how exercise was affecting me, how my sleep patterns were affecting me, how certain stress levels, what I ate, everything. And it was just the first time that I was really engaging with my diabetes on that kind of level and, and understanding. I don't think I ever understood before that what was going on with my diabetes management. And after that two weeks, I could not afford the device. I knew that I could not afford it. And I grappled with that for a few weeks. You know, I was very frustrated with myself because I... At the same time, I knew that I could possibly afford it, but I knew that everyone else my age was saving whatever pocket money they were getting and going on overseas trips or funding a new car or doing that sort of thing with their extra cash. And I just could not bring myself to use my extra money on a health device. And it took me nearly a couple of months before I realized that this was an investment in my future, in my health for the future. And it's a weird thing to be thinking about at the age of 21 years old. That's not something you're thinking about. You're not thinking about your future. <laughs> and um, I committed to doing babysitting on the side so that I could afford a continuous glucose monitor on a continuous basis. And I got to use the device and I felt wonderful. And I, I could make so many changes to my, my diabetes management routine that I, I probably would never have been able to figure out by the finger prick method with only four to five test strips a day. And I became motivated to exercise and to do certain things that I feared doing before because of low glucose events. I love hiking, but I hated having to hold my friends back on a hike to get my testing kit. I'll prick my finger, wait and see what the result was, you know, and they were wanting to march up the mountain. So I, I retracted from a lot of activities that I, I really loved and wanted to get involved in. And having access to a flash glucose monitor completely changed the game for me and has now enabled me to live a fuller life, uh, a more a less limited life when it comes to living with diabetes and i knew that i wanted that for everyone else i felt extremely guilty that i now had access to this and that i was wearing it proudly on my arm i was advocating for it i was posting about it on social media telling everyone how wonderful this device was but reality is that no one could afford it so during lockdown i was approached by a fellow person living with diabetes and we decided to start a nonprofit organization and it was four type ones by type ones that was the initiative around it and we all came together there were seven of us living in different regions in south africa which was also amazing and our first campaign was all around getting access to cgm but advocacy in south africa was very quiet it's something that has just started. And, and I think none of us really knew what we were doing, but we thought, you know, if none of us know what we are doing, 
let's just start and see what happens. And that's something I've loved with Bridget being one of my mentors is how she just goes after things. And if they say no, you try it another angle and nothing we do is wrong. It's just one step forward and little by little, a little becomes a lot. So we started by thinking, okay, what could motivate the private sector especially because we wanted to go private sector route first because we believe that once it's in private sector the funding can be done to get local evidence on the fact that CGM can improve A1C it can improve quality of life all of those things and we thought what could motivate a medical aid scheme to want to fund a device like this and we thought, you know what, medical aid schemes are very number focused. They like to know the numbers. We know what the, we know the numbers globally. There's evidence out there about CGM everywhere about how beneficial it is in the long term. But we thought, you know, coming from a, a patient voice or a person living with diabetes and, and using our voices, how could we motivate a medical scheme to come forward? And we decided to get a bunch of testimonials from people living with diabetes or carers of those living with diabetes to tell us how a continuous glucose monitoring device or even a flash glucose monitoring device could change their life or how it has if they have had access to it. And I think we got over 150 testimonials on that. We then linked with Bridget at Sweet Life and there was a larger campaign at hand where we did a survey and we got so many signatures on that front. And together with the testimonials and the survey, we put that through to the medical aids and that's what got our foot in the door to have the first conversation. And for the first time, it wasn't just one voice emailing their medical aid to complain. It was now the community coming at large. And I think that was the thing that got them to have that first discussion. Many South Africans' advocacy perhaps is better known in the setting of HIV with the treatment action campaigns in the mid to late 1990s during that disastrous period when antiretroviral treatments were regarded as you know inappropriate therapy. I think in the chronic condition space, such as diabetes as the perhaps prototypical example, this is really, really novel stuff that has shaken the tree in essence. And I smile as I say that because I see the organization you work for is called Tree Shake. Is there a, is there a link there? Is that just coincidental? Um, no, I, I was originally working in finance. I studied financial management and I worked in finance for five and a half years. And slowly but surely, I started doing advocacy on the side, just as a sort of hobby or passion, I guess. And then it came to mind that this could actually be a full-time career. I could go into advocacy full-time. And TreeShake is a wonderful organization that work on many initiatives around the world. Their whole concept is using the power of social media and community to create effective change. Because if one person is passionate about something, you're bound to find other people that are passionate as well and to come together as a community to create that change. So it's been incredible working for an organization that does so many wonderful things for the world. Your website makes an interesting comment. It says advocacy is not the following things. And one of the things the website says is advocacy is not toy-toying and fish-shaking and, uh, and picketing, in fact, I think was the word, protesting and picketing. Has social media replaced that? Is that the modern-day picket? Is there still a place for the shouting up and down outside of your medical aid? Because we still recognize that there are probably most medical aids in this country who are denying access. We know the state aren't making provision for continuous glucose monitoring. Why not make it a visible protest? What's wrong, in inverted commas, with that approach? I think we've gotten to a point where we've realized that it needs to work for everyone. It needs to work for pharma, it needs to work for the medical aid scheme, and it needs to work for the end user. If we're being realistic in terms of business, we understand how business works. And we also understand that, as we said, it needs to make sense for everyone. So to go and just fight and say, we want this and you're not giving us this, it's better to have a negotiation to understand their point of view. So instead of just saying, give us this, we go to them and we say, what sort of evidence or what do you need 
to get us to this point. And so instead of rattling the relationship that we could form with them, we actually go in with a very neutral front and we ask them nicely, what can we do for you to provide CGMs at a more accessible or affordable rate? And the discussions tend to be a lot more open-minded. You end up forming this relationship, a long-term relationship, because this is going to be forever. It's not just going to be a once-off. And I think that's the important part. I think if you go the other way and you riot and you, you cause a scene, you end up really making someone upset. You end up in the paper. You end up tarnishing a name or a relationship in the community. And I think what we want to do as an advocacy organization is be neutral across all fronts and have healthy relationships with both the funder and the producer of the products. Seems a very insightful approach that has resulted in great outcomes. At this point, I'd like to introduce our third tool. In the past two weeks, we've been introducing some essential tools for your journey in diabetes care. And this week, we're going to talk about insight. Essential tools for your journey in diabetes care. Whether you are a person living with diabetes or a practicing health professional working in the field, these tools will help you along your way. Our third tool helps us to avoid taking situations at their face value and to see what is really going on. Let's talk about insight. Insight is the ability to grasp the key elements of a complex situation, issue or person. It's a vital skill for daily life and specifically for the facilitation of the care of chronic health conditions. Successful self-management of diabetes requires understanding of many different aspects of life. Decisions need to be made daily about food choices, insulin dose adjustments, management of high and low blood glucose values, and the interpretation of troubling symptoms, as diabetes related or not. These decisions need to be made with insight, using information learned from previous experience, information from the person's diabetes team, self-study, and his or her current situation. Every blood glucose value, whether in target or out of target, is useful in that it provides feedback about the consequences of each life choice. This historical information can thus be used to help predict the future. If, for example, a person's blood glucose level drops following hanging washing on the line, this is data. If it happens twice in a row, the person and their care facilitator have information. If it happens a third time, this pattern gives both of you the insight that hanging washing burns more glucose and tends to drop blood glucose levels. Without insight, people continue to experience the same problem repeatedly. But with insight, we can make changes to prevent situations like this, such as having a small snack or reducing the relevant dose of insulin prior to hanging the washing. Insight can also help us predict and prevent problems in new situations from information learned in similar situations. For example, someone experiences hypoglycemia when doing a monthly 5km fun walk. She has planned an overseas trip and wants to do much sightseeing. You can now predict that her blood glucose will drop during the long periods of walking, and she can therefore take steps to prevent this by having extra snacks or reducing insulin as applicable. Insight can be a valuable ally in helping you not only to better understand the problems we face in diabetes, but also yourself, your relationships, and the situations you experience. Someone wise once said, think like a person of action, act like a person of thought. 
Michael, when I reflect on the two components, I can't tell you how many conferences I've been to over the years where the, the plenary sessions are entitled things like Toolbox for Diabetes or Best Toolbox for Diabetes Care for Healthcare Practitioners. Listening to Kirsten's earlier statements in that sense, she didn't use the word tool, she used the word enabler. And if you think of continuous blood glucose monitoring, just because you're using it probably doesn't automatically result in improved outcomes, better well-being, and health, although it might. But I would argue, and I'd like to hear Kirsten's opinion on this as a healthcare provider myself, that it enables the person with diabetes to to achieve those outcomes better, for lack of an appropriate word, and safer, particularly in the setting of type 1 diabetes, where hypoglycemia may in fact be a significant limiting factor to outcomes. I think I'll start by saying that that was something that was always at the forefront of our minds when we started advocating. It wasn't just that we wanted greater access to the device, but we wanted people to understand how to use the device to better their management. It wasn't just supposed to be a free for all because the whole point of getting access to a continuous glucose monitor or flash glucose monitor is that you can afford to then or be more enabled to understand your diabetes management better and then to obviously make changes to your regimen. And I think that was the thing that we've always been or hold a strong mindset about is that we don't just want to give the technology to people. We want them to be able to use the technology to better their lives. I think you provided a great motivation. Something that's very dear to my heart is that while glycemic control or glycemic management more correctly is vital in diabetes care, I see one of our main functions as healthcare professionals is to help the person or to facilitate the person with diabetes to live the most productive and fullest life possible. And you shared how your lack of being able to check your blood glucose at various time points in your life, especially when you were doing things that you loved, like hiking, caused you to withdraw. And what I loved hearing was that when you were able to do that, you were able now to participate in life fully. And surely that seems to me the ultimate outcome that we should be desiring in diabetes care is the expression of a life well-lived, a purposeful, happy, and healthy life. Your comments? It's not just the person who's living with diabetes who it affects. We speak a lot about parents or children living with diabetes and the effect that it has on their sleep patterns, the effect that those sleep patterns are going to have on their performance in their workplace, how it's going to have an effect on their health in the future by not being able to sleep and being highly stressed all the time. We also speak about the relationship between a child and a parent. They come from a nurturing environment with their parents and all of a sudden at the age of six, they get diagnosed with diabetes and and now the parents, instead of waking up and giving your child a hug, they're waking up and going and pricking their child with an injection or pricking their finger. And it changes so much more. And it's something that we struggle to measure is the quality of life. And I, I can't explain it. I can't put it into words. <laughs> But if you speak to anyone who knew me before and after using a flash glucose monitor, I think they would explain it better or put it into words how much my life has changed since then. Wonderful. I have an extraordinary story of a young patient who receives care at our facility. And uh, this person is, in fact, a commercial airline pilot in South Africa. And he's done incredibly well because of the utilization of continuous glucose monitoring, able to acquire funding, at least in part, for the particular system he uses, no doubt in the back of Kirsten's advocacy efforts. And his life has changed because whereas he was literally grounded in the setting of his occupation, he's now flying again. And the matter went as far as it could with the aviation authorities, uh, almost sitting at the, the point of litigation. And his life is, is 
renewed, he's invigorated as a result of this. And this person really is, excuse my pun here, but he's flying both in the literal sense and in his well-being and health. And kudos to an organization who are advancing advocacy. And you see at the other side of the desk here, the tangible outcomes that are meaningful for this life well-lived, as you say, Michael. Mm. Kirsten, I'd like to talk about the course that you present, the SA Diabetes Advocacy course, which we talked about last week. And I verbalized that I was so impressed with the course itself and with your facilitation of that. Just give us a bit of an insight into your journey on this course and what's changed, how it's changed you and how you feel you've been able to change outcomes out there in the community. We were constantly contacted around how people could help. It's a weird concept. People are living with this chronic condition, but everyone wants to do their part at the same time to help others that are living with the same condition. And it's interesting because you'd think someone living with a chronic condition might not. Their plates are full. They're busy doing so much. But the passion that we find from people living with chronic condition, um, that want to do work and want to connect with others, is just mind-blowing. And because we kept on getting these consistent requests of where can we help, what can we do, Bridget and I thought, you know what, let's empower people to create their own change in their own communities. So we co-founded SA Diabetes Advocacy, which we then got all the member organizations in South Africa that represent diabetes. And we then have the patient voice as well. So we get everyone together. It's a four-week course, as um, Michael explained in the last episode. I wouldn't say it's very time-consuming. You get your course material for the week, and then you have a one-hour Zoom session where you reflect on the week's course work and we go through questions and we brainstorm together and we discuss certain topics that are at the front of mind when it comes to advocacy. And I think it's incredible because again, like I said previously, we don't know what we're doing. No one knows what they're doing, but we all have some fiery passion inside of us. There's something that has triggered us that we want to help other people, something that we faced as people living with diabetes, that we want to make easier for other people living with diabetes. And whether it's in your workplace environment, your school environment, whether it's in your own family or your own community or your friend group, it's up to you to actually have a voice and to change the things that you are facing, to change the stigmas, to change the education around people living with diabetes. Let me put it this way as well. Take some time, as Michael spoke about earlier, you need to be at a point of self-acceptance that you are living with this condition to be able to put your voice out there and be confident and express it in a way that you feel comfortable sharing your journey with others because a lot of advocacy is about telling your own story. And so, yeah, the course, we've done four successful courses so far, and we have put out the next courses for the rest of the year, and they're all fully booked. So people are really excited. And what's nice is it's not just people living with diabetes, it's the carers of people living with diabetes, it's the healthcare professionals that are coming to to understand the lived experience side of things. And it's just been a really wonderful place to be, to be honest. We didn't know what to expect when we started it, but what you find is a bunch of really passionate people that are each passionate about their own specific topic. Topic, which I love. We come together, we talk about things that we need to talk about, and then we get put into a community of people that, that want to advocate in the space. And the project starts, and we're there for guidance, we're there for the motivation and the understanding. Because some people think that their passion is too little, some people think that their advocacy project is not going to affect that many. But I think we're here just to motivate and say that every little thing that you do is going to impact at least one person's life. And if you can impact one person's life, that is enough. So yeah, the, the course has been incredible so far. It certainly was a wonderful experience for me, Kirsten. 
I'd like to just pick up on one of the comments you made during the course. It focuses on the topic we'll close out today's session with, which is that of bias. And you spoke about your experience injecting out there in restaurants in the community and, and the negative uh, reactions you received. I'd like to give you a few moments to think about that answer while we go to our sponsor for today, the CD Pharmacy. Professional staff of the CDE Pharmacy have been caring for the specialised needs of people living with diabetes for nearly 30 years. We supply the widest range of blood glucose sensors, insulin pumps and infusion sets and we stock a wide range of food products and supplements to support your healthy nutrition needs. You can find the CDE Pharmacy at 81 Central Street in Houghton Estate, Johannesburg. We are open from 8am to 5pm Monday through Friday. If the CDE Pharmacy is a step too far from you, or if you prefer shopping from the comfort of your own home, please visit the online store of choice for people living with diabetes, CDE Online. There, you can view all our products at your leisure and have them shipped direct to your door nationwide. Don't miss our weekly specials only at cdeonline.co.za. It's a bit of a weird situation injecting in public. I have got into a stage where I feel comfortable doing what I need to do because I know that I have to do it for the rest of my life. And I do sometimes take other people into consideration. For instance, I know a lot of people get a bit queasy around blood and injections and needles and things. So I do often, if I'm sitting in an airplane and I'm right on top of other people, I normally say, sorry, just to let you know, I will be injecting now. You will come to look if you want. But, you know, I just, I give them that sort of rise of way. And interestingly enough, I flew back from Joburg yesterday and I didn't say anything because both the people sitting next to me had earphones and And this guy eventually a bit later, he took his earphones and he said, sorry, are you... Do you, are you a diabetic? So I said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, well, if you, if you need anything, please let me know. I've, I've got enough snacks here and everything. And I was like, thank you. Like, it's just, it's so fascinating the different approaches you get. There have been times as well, if you go to music festivals or whatever, people literally think you're taking drugs or, you know, it's it's a very strange environment or, or people will say, oh, I could never do that. There's always an opinion, weirdly enough. I think it is difficult for younger people living with diabetes to embrace that because of the fact that it draws a lot of attention to you. I don't think I've ever once injected and not had someone look at me or someone say something or oh, it smells like this or, you know, something. There's always something. And again, with especially with these devices that we wear these days, it makes the condition a lot less invisible. And it's also something I've gotten very used to now is people staring at this thing on my arm, people asking questions about it. And often the questions are quite triggering just because people can say, oh, do you have the bad kind of diabetes? You know, it often leads to a lot of questions around diabetes. And and instead of getting triggered by these questions, I now use it as an opportunity to educate. Because if I think about before I got diagnosed with diabetes, my knowledge around diabetes was nothing. So it is now rather an opportunity to educate than to get triggered and to start advocating at a strong voice when these people come along and ask questions about these devices. We spoke in a previous podcast about stigma associated with some of the novel technology, particularly with regards to wearable tech. But many of the aspects you speak on stigma there go back to just you know 100 years old worth of insulin injections in that. And stigma really is one of those strong emotions that comes out in the field of diabetes medicine, as does bias. And it makes me just reflect as we've been sitting here to round off our discussion of this week. You know, We, we see a lot of older patients with type 2 diabetes in our clinic and thinking about the onboarding of continuous blood glucose monitoring and the real day-to-day challenges we have in the setting of almost ageism. 
that we have an older person who's well deserving of continuous glucose monitoring, but may not be able to understand and deploy modern smartphone technologies that are required in order to utilize the bulk of these tech. And I'm disappointed by that because bias pervades a lot of diabetes care in terms of what people with diabetes can and can't do. And unfortunately, it also pervades the healthcare aspect where if you have a practitioner who perhaps is less confident or less knowledgeable about deploying a technology like an insulin pump or continuous glucose monitoring, then the person receiving their diabetes care at that point in time is likely to be biased and not have access to the full suite of therapies that are available in the modern time. And it's no longer appropriate to be harboring these biases. And I think a lot of older patients really deserve more appropriate care. And these biases should be explored. In fact, at our facility this week, we ran a quick workshop on this. We utilized a TEDx talk presented by Isabella Martinez, really talking to some of the practical approaches that uh, could be done by healthcare workers to enable and onboard the older person particularly, or the digital naive, so to speak, the digital nomads in the modern terminology. And I thought that tied up very nicely because advocacy against bias is probably something well worth looking at in this population of people. And that kind of sums up my week in a nutshell. We are strong advocates in our teaching of healthcare professionals that diabetes care should start with the practitioner and a deep introspective look into our own attitudes, values, and beliefs, the things that drive our practice. Because if we're not self-aware, if we have internalized biases against certain types of people, we will, whether we like it or not, transmit those to that person and effectively shut down communication. It's an incredibly important part of the approach to successful diabetes care. Well said, Michael, as we come to the end of this week, fabulous session uh, with Kirsten de Klerk today, diabetes advocate par excellence and a person living with diabetes. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll note you as our first studio guest. So really added a great sparkle to our uh, session this week. Michael, I hope your week is a good one. Kirsten, long weekend, possibly down in the Cape. And we will be back with our regular podcast. Remember, should you have any questions, if you want any aspects of this podcast covered, don't hesitate to drop us a line at podcast at cdediabetes.co.za. Remember that you can listen to these talks at uh, no cost if you download them on either Spotify or Anchor. We'll catch you in the week ahead with our next uh, podcast. Until then, yours in good health. And from me, Michael, thank you for joining us and thank you to our first studio guest, Kirsten. We really appreciate you sharing your time and your experience with us. With that, we wish you all a good week ahead. Go well. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important, specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting 
according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!